Father, as we gather this morning and we come before you, it's by faith. We gathered by faith. We believe and we've come. And Lord, we seek you. We seek your presence, your manifest presence. And we ask, Lord, that uh, as we are here, you will interact with us, that something in the message uh, it kicked off a bunch of conversation this morning already. I hope it'll do so again. And Lord, we seek you for that. And we ask your favor uh, that as we go into your word, you will pull out all the treasures that are in you. And we ask for this in your name. Amen. All right, so grab your Bibles, turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 3, and we'll start with verses 7 and 8 this morning, and it goes like this. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. When they heard how many things he, Jesus, was doing, they came to him. So the word of Jesus and what was going on with his ministry was spreading like wildfire. But remember, this didn't happen in a vacuum. In other words, sometimes we think in Scripture just you show up and pop, everything happens. There was a lot that went into it beforehand. For example, John the Baptist's ministry uh, had preceded it. They actually uh, overlapped to some degree. And so uh, people were coming to still hear John. And on the way to hear John, they heard about Jesus and went, well, who's that dude? And then they heard about Jesus and then more came because of what Jesus was doing. So uh, the procession to this Galilee, to the Galilean area, to Capernaum and those places, never really stopped. It just kind of increased. And here, because of the increase, because of the crush of the crowd, Jesus actually can't even be in town anymore. And so he retreats. Uh, it says to the sea. Actually, I should be read to the hills around the Sea of Galilee. Um, Mark makes it pretty clear from the story of the man with the withered hand last week that um, Jesus was aware of their plot, uh, their intentions to destroy him. He knew the hostility was increasing, and so he kind of pulled out of the main camp and created a camp in the outskirts uh, there. And so it says literally he withdrew to the sea. Right? Uh, but that didn't keep the crowds from finding him. And so once they found him, they kept rolling out. If you take a look at the map again, here's that map of the area. We expanded it a little bit. You can see the Sea of Galilee. But people were coming from far away, as far as 50 miles away, which is a long way when you think of walking or donkey or, or that kind of stuff. We'd, we'd think it's long if we had to walk down to Thrasher's Corner, right? That's a long walk. Well, this is 50-some miles. If you look at Idumea there, Idumea is Edom, right? Uh, Edom is Esau. So if you go all the way back in the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau, right? Esau becomes Edom. He had red hair, Edom, red. And then Edom becomes Idumea. And so uh, this, ha- this is a fascinating chapter, and we'll get there in just a second. Uh, tire is important. Uh, if you see up there in the north and the left there, tire. Uh, Tyre is important because it's a major shipping port, major trading port uh, on the Mediterranean. So reports of Jesus would have literally gone all around the Mediterranean uh, as that was happening. Uh, it's a big deal if people are coming from Jerusalem down to Galilee because Galilee's kind of the backwater. Galilee was the northern tribes. Galilee uh, was kind of the other side of the tracks for being Jewish. And so 
for people to come from Jerusalem meant something really big had to be happening for them to make that trek. You just didn't go there uh, because you didn't have anything else to do. And so that was a big deal. Uh, coming back to Edom, uh, foreigners were coming. If you look on that whole east side there, you have Idumea, the Decapolis, uh, the Tetrarchy of Philip. That uh, was formerly Israel, but really during this period wasn't. And uh, that's what modern day Jordan as we know it today. Uh, and so there were a lot of foreigners that were coming to hear what Jesus had to say. Not all of them were Jewish and, and many of them were actually hostile to Israel and, and they were showing up. And so in this, there's a really interesting historical twist here. The, if you go back to the Macca, Maccabees, uh, if, do you know who the Maccabees were? They were the people that overthrew um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and from Syria, that whole epic, uh, amazing uh, kick-butt dudes, okay? And they, they literally fought battles where they were outnumbered a thousand to one and they won. Uh, if you've never read about the Macca, Judas Maccabeus and those guys, fascinating history. I, I'd encourage you to look them up. But the Maccabees under Judas had some uh, victories against Idumea. And then later John Hyrcanus, one of his uh, relatives, conquered Idumea. And so when they conquered Idumea, they forced them to be Jewish. They said, you're Jewish now. And that didn't really work uh, because it was laid over the top. And they were never really considered true Jews by the Jews anyway. So uh, it was kind of this uneasy truth sort of thing. But what was interesting is that out of this mix came Herod the Great. Herod the Great was Idumean, right? So Esau, the sworn enemy of Jacob, all the way down the historical line, you take it all the way to the New Testament, you have Esau and Jacob still warring. Herod the Great, who's Idumean or from Esau, is now the ruler of the Jews. And when they came back to him and said, you're not really one of us, he's not really a king, he said, well, I'm Jewish. Get it? He's working both sides of the crayon there. And so uh, that, that's how they got stuck into that particular thing. And so you can understand, uh, you know, Herod proved to be great trouble uh, for Israel and her history. So just going back to the story then with the crush of the crowds, the crush of the crowds would be something like we would understand, like when you watch the Super Bowl, right on Super Bowl Sunday and the game ends, there's this like mosh pit after the game and the players can't even move or get around. And uh, I've just thought, man, they should not make that legal. They should create buffers and just give people space. But just, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. So Mark takes it and, and explains the story further. He says, So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. So even Jesus was concerned about the pressure of the crowds. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. The, the press of the crowds, the crush, uh, things had gotten really out of hand, so bad that Jesus had to actually preach from a boat. Right? He's offshore. Uh, they can't get to him, and so he can preach from there and uh, heal people. It says he heals many, uh, so that uh, as many as had afflictions. Other translations would say diseases or plagues. 
it's probably best to understand this as some, some if you had some besetting condition, some physical condition, some health condition, some mental condition, some spiritual, spiritual, emotional condition, that was who Jesus touched and then he healed them. Again, even if the crowds weren't quite sure who Jesus was, the demons knew very clearly who he was. It says they would cry out, we know who you are, the Son of God. Um, and now again, this is not an affirmation of faith. The demons weren't believing in Jesus and saying, oh, you finally showed up. Okay, we're not demons anymore. We believe in you, Lord Jesus. That's not what's going on here. Okay? They are practicing an occultic uh, understanding that if you knew the precise or secret name of a person, and if you could call that out, if by calling it out you could gain mastery over that person. So they were actually in a spiritual battle with Jesus and trying to gain the upper edge. They were trying to actually bind him. All right, so it's interesting. They're trying to bind Jesus. Jesus is binding them. And you have a, a, a battle or a war going off here. The expositor's Bible commentary says, these cries of recognition were designed to control him and strip him of his power. So they're not friendly on, on any level here. They're very antagonistic and hostile. The expositor's Bible commentary goes on to say that Jesus silenced the outcries of the demons because the time for the clear revelation of who he was had not yet come. And besides that, the demons were hardly appropriate heralds for him. Right? Which, if you think about it, is really true. Why would demons announce his coming instead of you know, somebody who's actually on God's side? So this, this is really intense here. Uh, in a sense, how we'd understand it, they were trying to blow his cover. They were trying to, to play his hand out before he was ready to play it out. And so he just, he just shut them down. Bang, bang, bang. Be silent. Bang. Right? And so people kind of knew something was going on. Right? If you're in a crowd of people and somebody goes, we know who you're... Well, that's odd. Right? What's going on? Son of God! Right? And Jesus would command them to be silent and they knew something was up. It goes on. Because of all this, it says that he went up on the mountain and called to him those that he wanted for himself. And they came to him, and then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So we see a second reason why Jesus withdrew. He withdrew to the hill country of the Sea of Galilee because he was building a team. This is the first uh, incident we have of where Jesus actually builds this team that he begins to call disciples. Uh, later they'll be known as apostles. Uh, Jesus winnows down his followers to 12 and he makes a team out of them. He would walk with them for the next three years. And this isn't just any old team. This literally became the greatest team in the history of the world. If you look at their impact, there is no team that's ever existed that had more of an impact than this team of 12 guys that Jesus put together. Jesus would train them, walk with them, talk with them for the next three years. Let's look at these. Uh, Mark lists them out here, who they were. It says he appointed the 12, Simon, who he gave the name Peter. We've met him before. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. We've met them. To whom he gave the name Boniardus, which is sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, 
and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. So Jesus lists his team, and then they go back into a home. When we're talking about the 12 apostles, um, you know, who were these guys? Where did they come from? Where did they end up? Just some brief character sketches. Real quick. These aren't long, but let's start with Peter. We we've know Peter. We've met Peter. He's probably the most famous one. Uh, in previous messages, we've talked about a lot. He's the brother to Andrew. He's a fisherman. He figures prominently in all the uh, gospel stories. Uh, he, was cru- he was crucified. Um, and I have my, uh, my apostles mixed up here. There we go. Uh, he ended up in Rome befriending John Mark, who wrote this gospel. And then uh, he died being crucified under Emperor Nero, uh, upside down, for he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord and Savior had, the Lord Jesus. James, the older brother of John, the other the son of thunder, they were sons of Salome, Mary's sister. And uh, James was the first apostle to suffer martyrdom. He suffered martyrdom at the sword of Herod. Uh, he had his head chopped off. And so James, Jesus' brother, uh, became a fervent believer in him and actually uh, it died uh, a martyr's death. John, his brother, uh, the other son of thunder, has a unique place in ministry and in the heart of Jesus in that in Scripture he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Boy, would that be a title or what? You're the one who Jesus loved. And that's a great... So when Jesus says he loves us like that, just think of the Apostle John, right? It's a, it's a great picture. But um, he wrote the Gospel of John, the Epistles 1, 2, and 3 of John, and then also the Book of Revelation. Uh, John is the only apostle not to suffer martyrdom although it wasn't for lack of effort. History records that in Ephesus they tried to boil him alive in oil, and that didn't work. Uh, that would have been weird to watch too, right? I mean, if you're one of them trying to persecute John, you tried to boil him alive and it didn't work, like, now what do we do, right? And they, they got freaked out by him, and so they took him and put him on this rocky outcrop in the Mediterranean called Patmos, and uh, out there he wrote this little book called Revelation, right? So God had some special plans for John. Andrew, brother, brother to Peter, is prominent in several of the gospel stories. Uh, Andrew preached in what is now modern-day Russia. At that time, it was known as the land of the man-eaters. Well, that's a catchy description, right? It kind of gives you the idea of how warlike they were. And uh, he also preached in Greece and founded a church in Constantinople. And uh, he was crucified in Patras, Greece, on a cross which looks like an X. And so that has become down through history now known as St. Andrew's Cross. If you go to Amalfi, Italy, which we had the privilege to go to last summer, there is in Amalfi the Church of St. Andrew. And you walk in the church. It's kind of a museum. You pay your three euros and walk in. But in the church, uh, way in the back in a place, is the actual crypt that holds the remains of St. Andrew. Right? And so if you're there and you're standing there, you're literally three feet away from that crypt, and you realize, wow, St. Andrew, Peter, Jesus. You're not that far removed. You're just kind of goosebumple stuff, right? I mean, it's pretty incredible. If you ever get a chance, I hope you go see it. Philip mentioned in several of the biblical stories, he invited Nathaniel or Bartholomew to come and check Jesus out. His journeys took him to the African city of Carthage and also Thagria, which is what we call it modern-day Turkey. 
Uh, he died a martyr on an upside-down cross. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was an Israelite in whom there was no guile. He was a straight-up dude, right? Uh, no guile means there was no cunning or no craftiness in him. He preached the gospel in both India and Armenia, and he was martyred for his faith. He was filleted alive by whips. So they just skinned him alive, whipping him, and then they uh, crucified him on a cross, also upside down. Matthew, we've met. We know him, the tax collector. And uh, he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He stayed in Jerusalem for a number of years and then went to other places. Legend has it that he was martyred in Ethiopia and put to death by an axe. So they chopped him to pieces. Delightful way to go. Thomas also known as Doubting Thomas, for his refusal to believe that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Uh, Thomas was probably the most traveled apostle. He traveled to India, then to China, and then back to India. So if you think in those days what it took to cover those distances, pretty significant, right? Uh, When he came back to India, there was a riot that broke out, and he was speared to death by soldiers. James, the son of Alphaeus, preached the gospel in Syria. Uh, The historian Josephus records that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Thaddeus, Thaddeus, also known as Jude or Judas, preached in the countries surrounding Israel. He went in tandem with Simon the Zealot. Church history tells us that he went to Greece and founded a church there in Edessa, and there he was martyred for his faith. His his cohort, or his, his preaching buddy, Simon the Zealot, Simon was one of the firebrands of the Twelve. A zealot was a a group of uh, Israelites who were radically committed to getting rid of Roman rule. And they didn't care how they did it. By hook, by crook, they didn't care uh, what it would cost. They were willing to do anything. And so Simon the zealot was ferocious. And it's fascinating that Jesus took somebody like that into his group and could take and turn that kind of passion into uh, you know, passion for the kingdom and passion for himself. And so Simon the Zealot, was uh, he was cast in the mode of the Maccabees, right? He preached in Persia and was martyred there because he wouldn't worship the sun god. He wouldn't bow his knee to the sun god. And so he was martyred for his faith. And then, of course, we come to Judas. Judas is remembered as the man who betrayed Jesus. He was the keeper of the purse for the group, so he was the group treasurer. But he was a crooked one. Scripture records that uh, he used to pilfer it for his own gain. And Judas died by hanging himself. Uh, the speculation, uh, you know, I'm sure you've wondered this. From the beginning, if Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him, why did he include him on the team? Right? It just, it's a fascinating topic. Um, we're going to have to leave that for another time. All right. If you take it just a little bit further, I want to get past Judas is why I'm doing that. If you go to Matthias, most of us don't think of Matthias. He's kind of an add-on. Matthias was at Pentecost. Remember, Peter said we have to pick someone who's gone with us since the, the ministry of John and make us to fulfill the vacancy by Judas. And so Matthias was the one that was picked. And Matthias uh, was uh, stoned and then uh, beheaded in Jerusalem. And so he met a martyr's fate as well. We had the chance last week to go hear the apologist J. Warner Wallace down in Maple Valley, and it was well worth, well worth doing. He was a former homicide detective for Los Angeles. 
And Wallace points out something here that I think is worth noting and really interesting as we head towards Easter. We're heading in that direction here really quickly. Wallace points out that uh, when it's a conspiracy, uh, a conspiracy is best held together by a small number of people, maybe two or three. He says when you get outside of that, what happens is uh, it's too easy for it to break apart. The stories, if you separate the people out, the stories don't match, the details don't match, so you start questioning, and pretty soon you, somebody realizes they're going to get thrown in jail, so they'll throw the other guys under the bus to save their own skin. And, uh, and so one of the big uh, contrary theories to uh, Christianity is that the disciples were on a, in a conspiracy together. If you've ever read anything like the Passover plot, that kind of stuff, they stole the body of Jesus, hid it, and then under all that pressure, even though they knew where the body was, they never produced the body. And then when they go out uh, and they suffer uh, martyrs' deaths, they all agreed that they wouldn't uh, fib on it, right? That they would all hold to the story. Think about this for a second with what we just walked through. Would 12 men isolated in different parts of the world hold to the story of the resurrection if they knew it was a lie? Is that what consistent with human nature as you know it? By the way, we could add to this, Paul was put to death uh, by Nero in Rome. Luke was hung in Greece. Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Mark, who wrote this Gospel, was dragged by a horse until he died in Alexandria. Delightful way to go. Uh, James, we studied the book of James last year and talking about Jesus' half-brother here. Uh, James was thrown off a rampart of the temple and then bludgeoned to death by a club. Would all these men, knowing it would cost them their lives, not crack under the pressure to renounce Christ because in their hearts they knew it wasn't true. Does that ring consistent with you? No. Usually what do we do? We crack under the pressure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just looking at this from um, being a kid. Uh, I'm the oldest of eight. I have four brothers. And, uh, you know... If you think about James being Jesus' brother, uh, do brothers always stick up for each other? No, right? And, you know, we, we would have a tendency to throw ourselves under the bus. Well, wouldn't it even be more true for these men? I mean, again, separate, they're, my, they're separated by miles, by geography, by community. They don't have smartphones. They don't have tab, tablets. They don't have the Internet. They don't have satellite. They don't have TV. They don't have none of that stuff. Wouldn't there have been pressure to change their story to save their own skin? I mean, all you have to do is bow the knee. Who would have known? Who would have known if Thomas is in China and he bowed the knee in China? Who would have ever known? Nobody. He could have come back and said, oh, no, it's gone great. Right? And nobody would have ever even known that he actually bowed the knee. There was nothing for them to lose, for these guys to lose, if it was just a clever charade right you carry the story till it gets to the point of no return then you go okay it was fun but we cough it up right here right um some would say it's their pride or stubbornness or or their delusion um 
Really? All these guys knew it wasn't true and not one of them cracked under pressure. Not one on that list. They didn't come from the same backgrounds. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's precisely what we don't see them doing. Being scattered in different geological places, not in contact with each other, all of them, regardless of the consequences, refuse to bow the knee to Caesar or some other god and are willingly, willingly go to their death confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that he died on the cross and then rose again from the dead. Often given multiple times to reconsider and recant, they absolutely refused. They wouldn't do it to a man. And I might add to a lady. There were a number of lady martyrs that uh, died in this era as well in the early church. They insisted that their story was true, that they had not made it up, and that they had not falsified it. Rather, they went to their deaths proclaiming that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection, every last one of them, except Judas, right? And John. John didn't die a martyr's death, right? Think here especially, go back to James, the brother thing. Um, We'll see just in a second, but James wasn't exactly on Jesus' weighing it when it first started. Uh, We'll see in the story here really quick. They thought he was out of his mind, which is true for brothers half the time, right? Yeah, he's crazy, right? They, they thought, you know, that um, he was Looney Tunes. Uh, I have four brothers, and under pressure, very, very seldom could we ever keep our story straight, all right? All my dad had to do was cock that eyebrow, and we were dead. We started to become blathering idiots. And one would say one thing, and that, I mean, we cracked under the pressure, right? And that was only with the threat of spanking. Okay, true reveal. Sometimes we thought we'd die, all right? (laughs) But it was nothing compared to the pressure these guys were facing, right? I'm absolutely convinced that all these men were telling the truth even at the cost of their lives and that they're utterly reliable. We, if you think about it, may have to someday as well. We might have to die for our faith. It hasn't been that way in this country. But we have to. And then the question this morning becomes, they did, would you? They did, would you? Is the death and resurrection of Jesus a head thing? An idea? Something up here? Or is it a conviction thing? Is it a deeply held conviction? It has to be a pretty deep, grounded conviction that you're willing to hold on to it at the cost of your life. They were willing to do that. Scripture tells us we are not to hold our lives as dear unto itself, that we are to treat our lives as precious unto the Lord Jesus. Why? Because the same things they face, we might face someday. Now, why do I ask that question? Because sometimes we think, oh, well, there's a lot of us. It'll be okay. We can hang together. These guys were all split up. Right? And under pressure, if our culture shifts, we may get all split up. And then the question is, will we we stand? Uh, His own family was wrestling with this question in the beginning, and they really weren't so much on his side. Look at where Mark takes this in the stories uh, coming from Peter. It says, Then he went home, 
And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's pressure. That's press, right? And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's very flattering. Okay? He is out of his mind. He's lost it. Right? So the home is probably Peter's house again. There's so many people, they don't even have time to grab something to eat. And that when his family heard about it, when they're in Nazareth and they hear about that, they come to Capernaum and they, it says they went out to seize him. This term seize him, another translation would say take charge of him. Uh, the Greek word literally means to arrest somebody. So when they seize him, they were going to arrest him and take him back to Nazareth and hopefully give him some rest and he'd be restored to his right faculties or his right senses. And so they're looking at Jesus like, um, you know, he's crazy. He's let this get way out of control. He probably didn't mean for anything like this to happen, right? He's just gone bonkers and we've got to pull him back in. We've got to help the poor dude. There was probably some concern as well as they, as they looked for his own health and well-being. Right? If you're running at a pace where you don't even have time to eat, how long does that go? And his family's probably looking going, okay, look, everything's out of balance here. We, we've got to cut this thing back. We've got to try and help him. Um, and so that's what they were trying to do. We're going to right now skip uh, verses 22 to 30. We're going to jump down to verse 31 because uh, 22 to 30 are a sermon unto themselves. It's on the Holy Spirit. So we're going to jump down to the other verses, then come back to uh, the Holy Spirit next week, all right, and make that the message. It's a big topic, and it deserves that. So let's take it down to verse 31. It says, And his mothers and his brothers, his mother and brothers came, standing outside, and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around, they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. I would have, I would have, put, I would have said, hey, your mom, your, your, your family's out there. They want to talk to you, right? Mitchell's translation. His own, they, his own family, couldn't even get close to the door. So you can imagine, they probably got there right and thought, we're family, right? We, we'll cut the line. They'll let us in, but they couldn't, no such doing. That crowd was so packed, they couldn't even get in. So they sent word down the grapevine, hey, we're, we're tell, let Jesus know his family's here. So it bounces down, gets to the door, goes in the house, and eventually uh, they say, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're seeking you. Notice they didn't tell him why they were seeking him. Right? By the way, they think you're crazy and they want to lock you up, but don't worry about that. They just want to talk to you. Okay? They didn't say that. All right? And Jesus uses this, again, as an opportunity to highlight the choice of those who had followed him. He equates it, if you look at this verse here, he equates it with doing the will of God. What does he say? And it says, and he answered them, to the people who said, hey, your family's here. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother and so Jesus does something here that's really unique is that he totally flips the paradigm uh, to make it look different Jesus knew then and he knows today who was and who is following him 
So if we're here this morning, we, not, we don't know totally. We can't read a heart, but Jesus knows. Holy Spirit knows. He's looking around the room this morning. He knows who is walking with them, and he knows who isn't. All right? Same as there. He says, the, those who do the will of God, he's my brother, my sister, and my mother. Second uh, Timothy 2.19. Jesus is equating following him to doing the will of God. And if you followed him, then you're part of his family. Second Timothy says, unequivocally states that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, two things. Here's the seal. Number one, the Lord knows those who are his. And two, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart. That means walk away from iniquity. In other words, as you see your sin, walk away from it. God knows those who are his, and those who are his should walk away from sin. Jesus was saying that those who chose him were those then who did that, and those who did that were then his family. Again, he's flipping the paradigm. What is he doing? Rather than in this house or sitting there, rather than him going to them, what does he do? They have to come to him. Right? He's saying the kingdom of God, I, I'm here now. I've come. Now you need to come to me. And you see this all the way through Scripture. It was those who had followed him who belonged to him. And it should be noted, it would take his family a while to get that figured out. Later in the end, they did. Uh, you find Mary at the cross uh, with other women following. They had come fully believed. And uh, we find James becoming the lead of the Jerusalem church. This same skeptic who told his brother he's out of mind. Later we find him fully converted. Do you think James would have died for his brother if he knew he was a fake? I don't think so. Those who followed belonged. Those who belonged are family. Okay? What Jesus is trying to say here is something that I think is important for us today. Jesus is still saying to people, come follow me. And when he says that, he's not just looking for a decision. That There is a decision in that. You do have to decide to accept that invitation. But it's not just an invitation or just a decision. When Jesus says, come follow me, he's asking somebody to follow him, to make the decision to follow for a lifetime, to come under his authority, to come into his kingdom, to let him be the boss and to follow him no matter where that trail will take you. We've had it pretty easy in our country for a long time. Matter of fact, for a long time, we're, we're the favored majority. We are no longer favored nor majority. In case you hadn't noticed, I just thought I'd let you know. Okay? Where that's going to go, we don't know. We pray for mercy from God, but also we know that he has allowed many uh, in his family to face martyr deaths as a witness to his resurrection and presence. Will that happen? We certainly pray it doesn't. Could it happen? Absolutely. And so when we're talking about this belonging, when we're talking about, we're looking at the same followership that the, the guys we put up on the screen were looking at. It's a followership unto death. It's all in. It's all the eggs in the basket. 
It's not holding cards back and I'll give you this, but I'm going to keep these or that. It's, you know what? I give my options to you, Lord Jesus. They're yours. You tell me what I can keep. You tell me what I got to lose. You tell me where I can stay. You tell me where I got to go and I'll do it. What we mean by that is following Jesus isn't a Sunday thing. It's an all the time thing. And there's a whole nother sermon I want to preach on this. I'll just rabbit trail for a minute here. We make a huge mistake in the church because we think there's holy and unholy. There's holy occupations and there's unholy occupations. So for example, I'm the pastor. So that is holy, right? And it is. I've been called to it. Jesus called me to it. I better do a good job with it and I better be obedient, right? Okay? But I'm the pastor. Therefore, my calling is holy. But yours isn't because you work out in the world, right? And what I want to say this morning is that your vocation, where you're placed, your job is every bit as sacred as mine is. Okay? There's not a difference in sacredness in our jobs. There's just a difference in roles. You have been placed uniquely by Jesus in the environment where you have been placed. That is your home. That is your neighborhood. That is the, the stores that you shop in. That's the schools that you go to. That is the places where we work. You have been sacredly placed there by Jesus every bit as sacredly as I've been placed here at Northview as the pastor, all right? Okay, enough of a rabbit trail. I just wanted you to solve that. That really bugged one guy out and we talked this morning because he went, oh my gosh, I'm in deep trouble. So, right? So take that where it's at. If the Holy Spirit's talking to you, deal with it, all right? But when Jesus was calling and he said, come follow me, that is an evangelistic invitation. Jesus is saying, I have noticed you. I know your name. You come and walk with me. Come follow me. And then the question is, will we respond to the invitation or not? Right? Many of us have. That's why we're here this morning. You can applaud. It's a great thing. God found us. We were lost. We're saved. We weren't saved. We now are. And now we're trying to figure out how to be consistent and how to be like him. Not that easy. Right? Some of you are smiling. Yeah, that's good. Okay? But we're doing it. And we gather together. Why? Because it's easier to do that together than it is apart. A lot easier. Some of us are still on the other side of the line. Other people may think we're Christian. Other people may think we've made that commitment. Other people may think we've accepted that invitation, but we really never have. We've looked at it. We, we've heard it. It's even bothered us. It's moved us at times. But we've not stepped across the line because I want to hang on to my stuff. I think I can do a better job with my life, Jesus, than you can do with my life. I think I can choose better choices. I can choose a better career. I can choose a better boyfriend or girlfriend. I can choose a better husband and wife. I can get more money. If I follow you, I've got to give it all up. I just, I'm just not into that. I think I'll stay on this side of the line. We know the invitation is there. We just haven't crossed the line. And I want to suggest today, Sunday can be a day of miracles. Today can be a day where you, have, you can cross the line. Jesus says to people today, just like he did 2,000 years ago, come, follow me. And to do that, I have to leave my control in my world and I have to step into his control in his world. Yes, it's scary. That's why we call it a step of faith. But I'll tell you what, 
I like it a whole lot better on this side of the line than I liked it on the other side of the line. Even though this side of the line is a lot scarier than that side of the line was. And this morning, if that's your battle, if you're wrestling with that, I just want to say to you, understand something that's very important. The invitation will not always be there. You may have heard it in the past. You knew Jesus was knocking on the door. You may hear it today. But it doesn't mean you'll have the chance at it tomorrow. Because we're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We're not guaranteed that we'll be around for tomorrow to accept an invitation. Nor are we guaranteed that the call will be there tomorrow. That's why scripture says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Step across the line. Come and join. And what we find with the disciples is they did. These guys piled all in. And, they, they, you know, we remember them. We know who these guys are, right? Even non-believers know who these guys are. Why? Because they followed them. So if you are there, this morning is a chance to step across that line. Let's pray. Father, as we close the message out, all of us here are acutely tuned to the pressure we are facing in our culture. We know it's shifted. We're wondering how far that rubber band is going to stretch. We're wondering how long we can sit in the middle and be peacemakers. We don't know. And we recognize, Lord, we must come to you and ask for you a courage and a faith greater than what we possess at this moment. Lord, some of us, uh, as we talk, are on the other side of the line. It's for that very reason we haven't crossed the line. And yet we know you've, you've spoken personally to us and said, Come, follow me. Lord, may, if somebody's there this morning, may they just have great faith and say, You know what? Today is the day. Now is the time. I've heard it before. I need to do it. Lord Jesus, I want to cross that line. I want to follow you. I want to come into your kingdom. I want to have my sins forgiven. I need to come under your lordship and control. Lord, walk among us. You know those who are yours. You know those who aren't. You can have a conversation with them this morning that would be very appropriate to who they are the personality you gave them, and the circumstances they're in right now. May they sense that, and may they know, just like the disciples, you're worth everything. It's worth being all in. And Lord, we give that to you in your name. Amen.